Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome again to Just Sustainability, curious conversations about sustainability, equity, and social justice. I first met Dr. Teresa Peterson when she invited some of my colleagues and I to her house for lunch. My initial impression when I arrived was that she had a ridiculously large, yet beautifully maintained garden. My guess is that Teresa's garden probably takes up a better part of an acre, could probably feed a small village, and is immaculate. Uh, the second thing I noticed is that her house is full of jars of dry beans. Inside those jars must be hundreds of varieties of beans, many of which I've seen nowhere else. Anyhow, Teresa's another one of those folks that's hard for me to introduce because she's awesome in so many different ways. She's on the board of directors and is co-founder of Dakota Wachoha, which is a nonprofit organization that works to revitalize uh, Dakota language and culture. She's been a Bush Leadership Fellow, been recognized as a Native Nation Rebuilder through the Native Governance Center, served as Tribal Vice Chairwoman of the Upper Sioux Community, and has so many more accomplishments and accolades, there's no way for me to list them unless I'm going to spend this entire episode introducing her. Here's how she introduces herself. Hmm. So I'm Teresa Peterson, and um, I'm Dakota. I come from a place where they dig the yellow medicine, otherwise known as the Upper Sioux Community. Um, I live with my family here on the bluff of the Minnesota River Valley. And um, I get to work with either tribal communities, whether that's um, tribes themselves or um, not Native nonprofits, Mm-hmm. Doing work um, in Indian communities, and um, or I work with organizations like the University of Minnesota Morris or foundations who are trying to do really good work in Indian country or be um, you know in better service to Native students. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and then I just um, feel really fortunate because I kind of just get to share the work that I feel like doesn't feel like work. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, that's that's what I get to do. After I asked her to introduce herself, I asked Teresa to tell me about any of the guiding principles that might inform the broad range of work that she finds herself engaged in. One of her answers is systems thinking, which I suspect is an answer that's unsurprising for anyone who's worked in any area related to sustainability. Uh, Teresa's second answer might be a newer idea to listeners. Indigenous assessment. Yeah, so like you do like a whole broad range of things. Is there like any sort of themes that you think you work on or like, like kind of general objectives, like things that you think unify the broad kinds of work you do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd like to maybe think of myself as a systems person or a systems thinker. Sure. Um, So I like big picture and then how are all the pieces kind of coming together. And so that, you know, helps with doing some of like the qualitative research that I get to do and where I get to do some assessments and reports and kind of come out with some recommendations. But those are all really always grounded in um, what do the people on the ground have to say. So I like to think of that as um, indigenous indigenous evaluation or indigenous um, based work, really listening to people. And then, um, you know, you could kind of take that same theme of systems thinking with gardening. And, you know, we have all the things that are required in order to grow healthy food. So we have to have soils and water and nutrients. And, and then, of course, our relationship with, with land, uh, how we interact with it. And then there's the whole piece around seasons. So, I mean, there's so many um, intersections around growing food that, very much requires uh, systems kind of thinking. 
The idea of indigenous assessment caught my interest, but Teresa didn't initially say much about it, so I asked her to tell me more. This is how she replied. I mean, it seems so, to me, like, kind of common sense and simple. Um, But what I find, of course, in a lot of um, organizations is that they want to come in as the expert, but so often they are very distanced from the actual uh, boots on the ground, if you will. So, um, you know, you can just take that example for, you know, tribes or something. So people trying to do good work, you know, whether that's providing resources or technical expertise it's absolutely necessary to um, move that work forward if like through listening to the people that, because that creates the context that creates the definitions of how people are defining um, success, for example. And so, you know, to me, everything's really relative. Um, And if you're creating things outside of that uh, relative context, it doesn't make much sense. That's what I like to think of as <clears throat> kind of an indigenous approach. Right. So something about like understanding like perspectives and values and objectives mm-hmm. of the actual communities that people are working with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yep. Worldview values, how they're defining, you know, how we define success around say education is very different. Right. Cause you have done a lot of work thinking about, well, at least higher ed in the context of UM. I'm not sure if, uh, other work you've done, but I know you've done a lot with us helping us think about like what we're trying to accomplish. You know, you have a lot of experience about, you know, how higher ed, particularly kind of from a Western framework, like a Western European framework thinks about like education and what we're trying to achieve versus like some indigenous perspectives of what education should be about and what we should be trying to achieve. Can you say more about like some of your experiences on like noticing what's different about the two sort of approaches? Well, I I think what I'll share is something that I see not just in higher education, but across the board is, you know, worldviews. Sure. So because I'm bicultural, for me, it's been really easy um, to navigate between two cultures, between mainstream and native community. And so I feel like I can really see the differences and then often am in a position where I do a lot of translation, if you will. Sure. And so one of the major differences that I see, and these aren't really mutually exclusive, um, there's definitely overlap, but um, how I see people, um, where they lead from. So in mainstream, it often really is um, monetary in some way, whether it's like, you know, time or efficiency, those mm-hmm. really become the qualifier for success. Um, and you know, in native community, really it's about relationships. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I've done like these exercises where we like kind of unpack values and, um, you know, have people really kind of talk about their own values and what shapes them and how that really manifests every day. What does that really look like? Cause people can say, oh, my values are X, Y, and Z, but really we need to look at how does that live out every day in our life? Right. So like, what do we do versus what we say or th- right. or think? Right, right, right. People will kind of inevitably start seeing like why there's been kind of misunderstanding between, you know, the two communities. I noticed during our conversation that Teresa placed a great deal of emphasis on relationships and their importance. I wanted to find out more about what she thought were good ways for folks working across communities, particularly for non-Indigenous folks who would like to work more with Indigenous communities 
to build relationships with their partners. She offered some terrific suggestions. So um, I think I'll share a little bit of um, like an experience I have with, with a research partner that I have um, on campus actually. And we've written a little bit about this as well, our story. But one of the things that I observed over time was that they were really anxious to like hurry up and kind of get to the agenda, get to the point of the day, (laughs) (laughs) you know, with, um, and I would often come in and, you know, first want to really talk about, you know, from a personal space, like what's going on, what's going on with your life? How are you, how's your family? And, you know, want to spend a lot of space in there, which, um, I mean, you can just even feel the thing, the difference of like really slowing down. Right. And what I have found is really, if people just kind of do start from that, that other work just kind of naturally happens and you really get a better product. Right. I think people are more at ease and I think people are in a place where they can be really more transparent and honest. And sometimes we're coming from a place um, around uh, that has more humility, if you will, or maybe right. like vulnerability right. in a good way. Yeah. And so um, I think people can have more frank conversations um, and really get to root, root issues too, if you really start from that space. Yeah. Well, and I think it's good that you point that out because I think for like a lot of po- folks, right, particularly in higher ed, approaching it from a mainstream perspective, like getting to business is, is I think they're intending it as a sign of respect, right? Like I respect your time. I respect right, your busyness. I respect it. I respect your work. So I don't, I want, I want to take at least amount of your time as possible to get the thing we need to get done, done. But yeah, I think it reads often for folks who aren't from that perspective as like, wait, I'm a person, right? You're treating me merely as this, you know, it's this role that you want me to play and not as a person. So I do think it's good to like, to think about that and think about like, right. Like one, someone might mean well, and might be trying to like be respectful, but like not understanding the cultural context means being really not respectful because again, it comes down to like really it's efficiency of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so just really honoring and being in relationship and, um, you know, starting from that space. So when I, um, started my relationship with this, this, um, colleague, <laughs> that was one of the questions I kind of asked, you know, was, are you in this for the long haul? Because I'm really not interested in having a relationship where you're just, coming in and extracting information and leaving. I, I right. don't really care to do that. No. And I think that's a, a common thing I've heard for, uh, right. Not, not just for like indigenous and native communities, but just well, kind of any community that's not right within higher ed. There, there's often the sense that folks from higher ed just swoop in, get the things they need and then just leave. And then no one sees what comes out of it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I do think that's a very bad way to work. Right. I think it leaves a bad taste for like anyone that's in the community. And also it's a, you know, it's objectifying and exploitative. Yes, absolutely. If you listen to the previous episodes of this podcast, you probably come to realize that I have a tendency to take conversations on tangents or to make topical leaps. I'm not sure if I do those things because I'm bad at transitions or if it's because I have a short attention span or something else. Anyhow, the point I'm trying to get to is that at this point in the conversation, I somehow took an unprompted jump to asking Teresa how she thought about decolonization. She had a really interesting answer, and I don't want to spoil it for you. So let's just listen to what she said. Yeah, yeah. So I know that, um, you know, of course, I navigate in in those, um, you know, in that vernacular because it's requiring academia. And (laughs) yeah, and we're definitely in that mode. But one of the things when I kind of first stumbled upon that and, and really kind of diving into that, I really thought about 
how um, decolonizing continues to give our credence and energy to colonizing. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. Say more about that. No, yeah. that's, that's a, yeah. yeah. So this kind of um, came up in our work at Dakota Wechoha, um, you know, our native nonprofit um, language revitalization. And, and, um, and I just thought like, wouldn't it just be better if we just worked on the reclamation part of who we are and right. you know, because it so, feels so much more empowering and positive instead of always, you know, D something. Um, so it took mm. to me like some power and emphasis away from colonization. Huh. So say something a little bit more about the distinction, right? Like, so like when you hear the word decolonization, what are you thinking? And then like, what are you thinking when it comes to like reclamation, right? Like mm-hmm. what's the, what are the, the differences in a, like, right? Like understanding and approach. Mm-hmm. You know, again, I know like it's kind of necessary and it is part of the same work, yeah. but for me it feels like decolonizing, like we might not ever measure up. We might not ever get to a complete decolonization. Also, even on a personal level, you know, how do we, create um, places where we're decolonizing all this clutter in our own personal lives. And, and, but then when you look at reclamation, it's like, where are the, where, where is it that we can build on kind of that positive empowering space of, um, you know, it's really rooted in that we, we already are this and we mm-hmm. just need to reclaim it. And um, so it feels more empowering and positive and achievable. And yeah. 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 So just like, I, I think it's, they're one in the same, but one I feel, I think feels a little bit more. Um, right. Just framing it in terms of re- like reclamation is, a, I guess. Yeah. In some sense, it did sound more positive, right? It's less, mm-hmm it's less sort of reactionary responsive. Decolonization, it still centers the colonization than responding to it. Reclamation in some sense, just conceptually focuses more on the thing you're you're regaining. Yeah, and it reminded me, you just said something that I think about often um, in our own tribal communities because of the existing colonial system that, you know, we're still navigating within, mm-hmm. we end up spending a lot of our energy, time, and money um, in reactive mode. Okay. Reacting to. Right. And, um, you know, there's this other space of, like, creative, visionary, you know, that I feel like reclaiming feels that, can kind of fill that space. It feels a little more liberal, uh, liberating. Yeah. And so say more about like the, right, that space of visioning and reclaiming and liberation, mm-hmm. right? So like what, so like, right, so you're imagining a perfect world where like, where, you know, Indigenous folks are reclaiming their culture, reclaiming their history, reclaiming, you know, the, the sort of the sovereignty and power. What, what does that look like? What are, what's involved in it? What are the, what's the, like the specific work we need to be working on? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a lot of good work already going on around language. Okay. Um, and then that's all over the nation. And you can see that language movement um, happening. And it's, you know, in all kinds of sectors, mm-hmm. whether it's governance, identity, education, you know, it's all over the place. So I, I feel really hopeful 
about um, where we're at in language revitalization. Mm -hmm. And a little bit more recently, the food sovereignty movement has really taken hold. Um, So again, food sovereignty is really rooted in that reclamation, Mm -hmm. liberation, and it's a reclaiming of something we once had, you know, our traditional food systems, our ability to feed ourselves. Yeah. And so I feel again, also really hopeful about that space. There's a lot of really good work. People are doing just amazing, innovative um, work around that and including intersections around economic development, community Mm -hmm. development, um, environmental um, stewardship, all those things. I really appreciate the distinction that Teresa makes between reclamation and decolonization. And I've started actually reframing my own work in those terms, right? In terms of reclamation and revitalization and centering on the strengths and vitality of communities, rather than in terms that center oppression as something to be reacted to. Uh, I was also curious about how Teresa related reclamation of indigenous lifeways and sovereignty to uh, language revitalization, since that's where much of her work is centered on. So I asked her about it. This is her response to me. Well, so that could be a little bit of a tricky tricky space. Um, sure. you know, there's lots of dialogue around fluent, you know, fluency and what that, you know, what those measurements kind of look like. Right. But I think foremost, um, you know, people understand language as it being completely tied to culture. Um, it, you know, defines who people are, how they see the world. Language is central to tribal sovereignty. I mean, it's um, Native nations are, you know, distinct because of their history land and culture of a people. Mm-hmm. And so language is tied to all of that. Um, I think, you know, when I first started doing work around language revitalization, I was like, oh, and then at this certain point, I'm going to become fluent. <laughs> and of course, that's <laughs> like, you're like, oh, yeah, that's probably, I'm probably, that's not going to ever happen for me. But I am more than um, pleased with the progress that we have made around language and I have never lost hope. Mm-hmm. You know, we have just, you know, down the road here at Chanchayapi, they have immersion head start program that's just started. And, and it, it, it isn't just about the actual language. I mean, I hear parents and grandparents just light up, you know, because their children and grandchildren are learning the language. And so it does something for people that's really rooted and fundamental to their spiritual essence of who we are as Dakota people. Right. Being adequately familiar with language allows you to, to conceive of things within like a particular cultural perspective, right? Because right, someone who only knows English, for example, right, probably can't conceive of some cultural concepts for Dakota folks because the, the, there's just not those direct translations. And so I can see what you're saying about, right, like being able to reclaim language means being able to reclaim ideas and reclaim ways of thinking. One of the examples I use that, and again, this kind of then will really tie back to that kind of relationality um, concept um, is that, you know, just the introduction is different from English and Dakota. In Dakota, you know, Dakota ya utuhu chistina amakiapie. In Dakota, they call me, if I were to, you know, introduce myself in English, I am. Right. And so they call me is directly tied to, you know, a relationship. It signifies a relationship to people who claim me as their. Right. 
I belong right. to a people. Right. It's recognizing that identity is community-based versus something like intrinsic or internal. Yeah. Or even kind of like I am is like um, some island unto yourself. <laughs> you know? And, you know, that again is really um, indicative of mainstream, you know, we really promote independence and in Dakota communities. And I would probably say in a lot of Native communities, it's very much interdependent and that we, you know, nobody gets anywhere by themselves. I'm here because of so many people. Right. Well, I mean, I think that's true for everyone. I think it's just often from the Anglo-American, Western European perspective, we like to pretend right, yeah. that we've got places by ourselves. Yeah. And then shame people when they haven't gotten there. <laughs> right. Right, right. Not recognizing that, right, that that's a failure of a, of a, of a system of institutions and structures. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think we've reached a good spot to stop for now. As a quick review, there are three things that seem to me to be big takeaways from this episode. One, the importance of relationships and how folks might improve how we approach building relationships. Two, the distinction between reclamation and decolonization, and how Teresa prefers to center the history and vitality of indigenous peoples rather than focus on settler colonialism. And three, the role of language revitalization in the reclamation of indigenous cultures and sovereignty. Next episode, we'll return to the conversation that I had with Teresa and learn about how she thinks about food sovereignty and gardening. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.